Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Andrew Rushby, and as always, I'm joined by Drs. Hugh Osborne and Hannah Wakeford. In this episode, we will be talking to Dr. Megan Schwamb from the Queen's University, Belfast, about her work on exoplanet studies from the ground and large surveys in application to solar system studies. To start the conversation, I'd like to hand things over to Hannah. Yeah, I'm really excited to introduce Meg to everybody. Meg is a planetary scientist. Um, She did her undergraduate degree at the University of Pennsylvania in the States before heading over to Caltech for a master's and a PhD in planetary science. Meg was then a postdoc at Yale for three years before moving to Taiwan at the Chinese Academy in Taipei. Meg is now a lecturer at Queen's University of Belfast, where she leads a group in planetary science uh, and working with the LSST through the Vera Rubin Observatory, looking at small bodies in the solar system. So we've got a lot of interesting topics to cover today with Meg that we don't usually cover on this podcast. So I'm super excited. Meg, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to kick it off on the exoplanet side, if that's okay. And I'm going to kick it off here by telling everybody that that Meg won the Carl Sagan Prize in 2017 for excellence in public communication in planetary science. Uh, This is an award that is established by the Division of Planetary Sciences within the American Astronomical Society. And this award was for your involvement in engaging hundreds and thousands of people in planetary science through online citizen science projects through the, the Zooniverse platform. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that Zooniverse platform and, and what you, you did in terms of getting exoplanets out there to everybody. Yeah, um, the Zooniverse is an amazing platform that allows researchers to connect with volunteers around the world to help do science. And so Um, The idea is that, again, there's tasks that are really hard for computers to do um, or need human assessments or the best, you know, computer algorithm is still our brain. And so having that sort of assessments from looking at data and saying, ah, that's different or that's similar is something that can still be hard for machines to do. And so um, the idea is the Zooniverse has all these tools that allow someone to come with data and say, hey, I would need some help and build these websites where you can have um, volunteers log in and start looking at the data and answering questions or drawing fe- circles or fe- you know, identifying features on these images or uh, sonifications of data or um, plots, anything you could think of. And so I was involved in the original Planet Hunters project where we gambled whether or not we would find <laughs> planets, um, you know, transiting extrasolar planets in data from the Kepler mission. Obviously, the Kepler mission has been so successful now looking back on it, but roughly 10 years ago, we weren't so sure that be, they'd miss anything. And so there's this question, well, maybe they would. And so we thought, well, what about if we did this with human pattern recognition, right? With having eyeballs looking at the data. And so the project enlisted volunteers to, to look for dips um, in, in these um, basically plots of data from the Kepler mission, um, looking at the brightness of the stars over time. And so, yeah, the project was really successful and we engaged a lot of people around the world because all you need was a web browser to basically be able to dive in. Mm. And it spawned um, several other versions of it, including one that I'm now involved in called Planet Hunters NGTS, where we're now using data from the Next Generation Transit Survey and doing the same thing. We're asking people to come help um, 
sort of, again, vet these possible planet candidates and identify the best ones that we might be able to get follow up on. What are some um, some standout results from the Planet Hunters project, in your opinion? Because there's been a ton of papers, so uh, I don't know. I think for me, um, it has to be Planet Hunters 1B. Um, <laughs> first of all, it's the first confirmed planet in the system. It's also my paper, so I feel like... Um, ah. Uh, <laughs> this is the one I remember most uh, as a first author, but it was, uh, you know, and I say my paper just that I wrote, I was the lead author, but that really it's, you know, all the volunteers as well and all the collaborators, but it was the first, it's the first planet in a four star system. And so it was just like the puzzle wrapped in an enigma wrapped in like, you know, some other kind of puzzle. Um, because it, like, as we did the follow-up on the system, right, we learned more and more and more, and it went from mm. uh, uh, sort of one thing to being something else. And so it's the first planet in a four-star system, and it's also a planet orbiting two stars. So it's a circumbinary planet. So again, one of these Tatooines, if you're a Star Wars fan, right? So, um, you know, Luke Skywalker's home of a, of a planet orbiting a binary, a binary star. And then as we started to do the follow-up on the system, we found that there's actually two other stars that are orbiting the whole thing, out at about a thousand AU, and so for me, it's it's still the first planet in a four-star system, um, and it was the first in the project that we got a confirmed mass um, to say it actually is a planet. Right? It mm. it has a mass that is consistent with it being, um, you know, a, a gas giant. So for me, that always has a special place in my heart. Um, out of all all the extra discoveries, and of course, it was also in Exocast Exocup at some point. Yes. So we, we had that in our exocup. You can go back and find the card for Planet Hunters 1, I believe, in the 2020 rounds. Yeah, you mentioned there that you, you led the paper on Planet Hunters 1, and that's that leads me to a, something I'm always not sure about as to kind of how much of the um, the work in these Zooniverse projects where there's citizen scientists involved is done by professional astronomers and how much is done by the citizens themselves and whether this kind of varies between the projects. So what's the kind of balance in terms of the work there? Um, between all the projects, I think the best person to ask is probably the Zooniverse the team in that sense. But um, I've been involved in, in roughly about four or five projects along the years, and I would say it varies between projects. I think it right. depends on what your data analysis task is, right? And so for Planet Hunters particularly, it's saying, is there something possibly there? Do you see right, a dip in, in the light curve due to a planet possibly moving in front of a star, right? That as it, the planet should move in front of it, we should see this drop in light and we're asking you to mark it. And then by combining the multiple assessments together, multiple volunteers, right, it's how we're identifying there's something there. Um, and so the volunteers there are on the first step of this process, right, in that sense. Um, but I think there's still, I think, a, a, maybe a threshold or a barrier between doing, some, of everyone doing, higher analysis and some of that is not having the tools some of it is not having the training depending on the project but there are volunteers that you can go further and so plan hunters 1b is sort of this interesting case where we had volunteers that went further in that um this wasn't found with the main classification interface where people were looking and marking um there was a visualization tool to go look at the different uh data from kepler and its different quarters on the website mm. And part of all Zooniverse projects is the discussion tool called Talk. And it's basically built for serendipity of, hey, if you want to talk to your volunteers, you can ask them to do things that might be higher order tasks for those that are, are at that level. Um, it could be just having discussions where somebody goes, hey, that's something weird. And you're like, hey, that is weird, um, which has happened on other uh, Zooniverse projects, such as uh, Galaxy Zoo. There's Handy's uh, Vorup, which is some 
a uh, basically black, supermassive black hole light echo, like light echo of the time when it like had turned on and turned off. Um, and it was found by somebody going, hey, there's like this green blob next to the galaxy. What is that? And the team went, we don't know either. Um, <laughs> I guess the version that we've actually talked about on Exocast is probably um, Boyajan star. So, exactly. so the, the WTF, where's the flux star, which was found with Planet Hunters, right? Same thing. And it was found with that discussion tool, right? And so the idea was yeah. that I had posted all the, the eclipsing binaries and said, hey, somebody had found the first transiting extrasolar planet around a binary star, you know, Maybe if somebody went through these, you'd find one, but it's going to be really hard because mm. you have all this signal from the, the, the eclipsing stars. And two volunteers went through and they found it. And they then went and downloaded data that we hadn't up on the site to go check it. And then they sent me an email. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so, yeah, they were like, here you go. And by the way, we downloaded and there's the other one. So we have three transits. And I was like, I was, you know, beaming and sent an email like, this looks real. Now what? Um, but the coordinating of all the follow-up observations, and this one was interesting because it was so much expertise, right? Because we need somebody who's an expert in binary stars, somebody who's an expert in radio mm. velocities, somebody who knew how to fit the system, right? Because now it's complicated <laughs> dynamics. Oh, yeah. Um, and then other dynamicists that, you know, do more solar system stuff to tell you, okay, we'll do the other two stars damage the, the orbit of the planet because we're like, wait, there's two other stars. Does that do anything? Um, and so it was one of these things where it was like everyone, everyone who was on the paper brought some expertise that somebody else didn't have. And it was everybody together that sort of told the story. So it's still my favorite paper ever to write because it was sort of bring all these people together. And it's like, I can't do any of this, but I can help orchestrate. Like, this is the thing we need. And this data is coming in and we need this follow up. Um, and so I, I don't know, it, feel, it, it was one of the most collaborative papers I've written. And it sounds like it had that magic moment at the beginning where you kind of asked this question and people went away and they came back and were like, this is something. And you go, oh, it's something. And that that's just such a amazing moment to have in any project that you're working on. So I, I can completely understand why this one just sticks. Yeah, and I think it's then the other surprises. We're like, okay. And then it was like, wait, there's two other stars. And so I think... As the story came out, because we were we had this first discussion, we're like, no way, are there other two stars? And then it was like, no, really, like they, you know, the the checks. As I think it's it's that story of people think science is the eureka moment. You're like, ah, and you're like, actually, it's the ruling out that everything else that you think it could be that's a false positive. Just and you're kept like, going like, and yes. going and going. And you're like, wait, no, it is really two stars around it. And then we finally got the mass in that said that this object was definitely planetary mass. And so for me, that was the moment. I was like, all right, it looks like a duck. It cracks like a duck. It is a duck, right? It is really a planet. <laughs> it's not some like brown dwarf. Brown dwarfs are fine, but it's just not a planet, <laughs> right? And so, you know, they're, they're, all things orbiting other things are interesting. But that, that, I think for me, was that moment of that, that story of like things got kept changing and it was ruling everything everything out till we got to the to the story which I think really is science but we don't tell that story we kind of I think that's the bit that sort of sometimes gets lost in the public that it's like from the from the discovery till writing the paper was like eight months or longer because like everything was because we're, we're putting all these pieces together so science doesn't happen in that like you know two days as it does in the movies sometimes <laughs> so I think so it's my favorite story of the process too right of how many people writing it how many telecoms mm. and the discovery of these this planet we invited them onto the telecoms they got to, they were interacting with us right as well we had them on the telecoms they were they you know saw paper drafts um and so they were involved um but i think it was a pairing of both having that expertise of people who could 
do their specific part to tell the story, plus the the volunteers that made this happen. And that is the best thing about the Zooniverse, right? Enabling serendipity. When we launched Planet Hunters, we never thought about planets around binary stars. That didn't exist, right? It was still science fiction, and we were still like, yeah. Is this, is this project even going to be successful? <laughs> Are we even going to find a planet? Right? So we weren't even thinking about that. And so I think it's just a beautiful story of that, of someone, you know, again, the Zooniverse team thinking ahead of like, hey, we've seen this happen before, right? Enabling tools that enable us to do things we never even dreamed of at the start of that project. And it's not the only Zooniverse project that you've been working on. So you also worked on Planet 4, which is looking at mapping Mars, and also looking at citizen science projects to find asteroid detection. Could you, you know, talk us through what what those two projects are and and how they came about and and what it is that people can get involved with? Yeah, um, the Planet 4 story sort of turned into multiple projects. So again, that sort of came after Planet Hunters, where um, the idea was that um, there are these seasonal fans that get formed on the, the South Pole of Mars on the ice cap. So about, you know, 30% of Mars's atmosphere uh, sort of snows out in carbon dioxide snow on the winter pole mm. each winter. <laughs> um, and so when that ice sheet is formed, it's got everything that's in the atmosphere sort of in there sort of snowing out into this temporary ice sheet. And so it has different levels of dust. And once sunlight comes and back into the polar region, you get basically these carbon dioxide jets. Um, and so because mm. carbon dioxide is not like water on Mars, it's, it sublimates, right? And so you've got a layer of trapped gas under ice once the sun is out, and it just breaks through into these sort of... Um, yeah, I think they probably would sound and look like a geyser sort of going off, but it wouldn't be mm. water. It would be, or geyser, depending on where you live. Dry ice, right? Yes, of dry ice, effectively, right, coming up. And we think it's entraining dust and dirt that then is bringing that material up just to the surface that then gets blown by the, the, the basically surface winds. Um, and the reason you see these dark fans is just because that ice sheet is like a frosted piece of glass, right? You can see mostly through it, but it still looks a little different. And so the, the dirt, the basically the soil particles look very dark when you observe from orbit. And so each one of these little, like, you know, fans or dirt streaks effectively is a windsock. Mm. And they look like ice cream cones. It looks really like you're seeing <laughs> that. Yeah. So it looks like you're seeing these, like, basically triangle with sort of that perfect half circle ice cream scoop <laughs> on the surface, right? Directed in these. Sometimes you see ellipses, which we dub blotches because we need a name for it. And the idea was if you could map these hundreds of thousands of these you could actually like bake the biggest wind map on Mars. And so the idea was this has been really hard for computers to do. It's still hard to do it. Um, collaborators have been trying with machine learning and it still can't get the direction of these features. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what humans can do really well is be like, that looks like an ice cream cone and let me draw that. Um, and so we've enlisted volunteers be mapping that in um, several years of high-rise data. So high-rise is this highest resolution camera ever sent to, to Mars or to any other planet than Earth. Um, and so you can see basically a coffee table on the surface of Mars. Um, and it's been mapping these, you know, or at least imaging these seasonal fans on the South Pole of Mars for five or six Mars years now. And so we can look at how does global dust storms change the winds? Um, how does it change how much carbon dioxide is outgassed? We could map all mm -hmm. these features. And so that's what we've been working on is really getting um, the, that map. And so, yeah, the, the, the sort of science papers are now starting to come out from Planet 4, 
um, but it spun two other projects off. One that's sort of finding new locations where these carbon dioxide jets are going off to then mm-hmm. get new measurements of Planet 4, and the other one's looking at mid-latitudes on Mars and looking at um, sort of different types of ridges that form in different environments that might tell us where water was on the surface. So again, all because of this human pattern recognition um, and the fact that by combining assessments from multi- many people together, you get a much more consistent answer than any expert um, and can often out, you know, outperform or beat the machines, as in our case, for Planet 4, <laughs> we still can't get a machine to go, that fan is pointed in that direction, uh, right? Or it's going left to right or upside down or whatever. Whereas that's just so very simple for us to look at that and yep. go, oh, that's the thing. Yep. I can see it. Yes. It's, it's amazing. It really is amazing. How many people are involved in these projects how many people classify these you know light curves in planet hunters or, or images in planet four um so i i don't remember the numbers from planet four off the top of my head but i think the joke i have for you know all these pro- for the planet four projects is one hundred fifty thousand people right wow. so one hundred fifty thousand collaborators um that have helped on these projects and so yeah it's it's i mean but again it's a, a combination of um, some people come and do a few classifications because that's the internet, right? We go to something in about 30 seconds, we st- decide to stay longer or not. And then there's people that, you know, continue to classify for, for decades. Um, and so yeah, it's this combination of both sets of volunteers, those that come and do a few and those that do a lot that sort of make these projects. And again, right, you can get volunteers engaged um, and remind about the project as you send out email newsletters. So it's interesting to me that email in, in this era of Instagram and Facebook, et cetera, um, sending an email to tell p- volunteers what you've been up to in the project is still the best way to <laughs> remind people about the project, where I thought Instagram would be the way. Um, but it's also, I think, just a testament that um, on average, I think the last time I checked statistics for Facebook is that most Americans on average spend about 30 minutes per day on Facebook. And so just like these citizen science projects online are just tapping a small fraction of people's attention mm. and imagine what we could do if we could get more of that. Um, yeah. So it's just, it's really interesting. that I think that the internet really has, has allowed and democratized science in a sense, because this is the gateway to get people to see real data um, that I don't think you'd see in any other way. And it's in a nice interface and welcoming where I think is when we show most science data, it's very scary and is not thought about for the public consumption. And so I think one of the things that's been nice about these projects is it's showing, you know, space mission data or telescope data in a way that I think is really friendly and welcoming and brings people into it. That again, helps open that window of what do we do as scientists? Even if the volunteers are doing a small part of the process, right? I think it's still taking everyone on that story of how do you go from analysis to discovery to what's a result i guess we're lucky as astronomers that the data we play with and the things we look at are so you know publicly available and interesting you know i can't imagine that classify this soil or uh, look at this agar gel or whatever in in genetics would be so so well um kind of used right so so that's i guess that's something we should take get advantage of if we can as astronomers right um i don't think it matters okay. because what's really interesting is that um you know, the original project that kicked off this universe was Galaxy Zoo, right? Which was looking at these pretty yeah. images of galaxies and saying, okay, what is their, what do they look like? What are their shapes? And Planet Hunters was, here's a graph with some data points. Yep. Graph. And so I, we, I was like, is, are people going to come was the, the worry, right? And people came. And I think the, the answer is, is that um, when the, 
people have studied this universe and the volunteers and asked, why do you come? The answer has been to contribute to science, which I think is a really interesting answer, is that it's not to see the pretty galaxy images. People are coming because they want this authentic experience. And so it's definitely the way I take with all these projects is that I really do view all of these volunteers as collaborators. Um, and that they do, you know, they're part of the process, right? And so we should treat them like that with everything we do and inform them of what we've been working on, et cetera, just like we would any other collaborator in science. But yeah, it's the pretty pictures, I'm sure, help. But to some extent, they don't matter. Um, people want to come help find a planet. So they're willing to look at graphs just as often and maybe more often than pretty pictures of animals. So I think the, the, the you know, the, the agar gels are going to be okay. Because um, again, it's this, and again, these projects don't seem to com over compete with each other. It's like new people mm -hmm. who want to do biology projects, go do those. Um, you know, if you have a small child, you might be like, let's go classify animals because that was really fun to do with my nieces and nephews. There's like, you can count penguins. That has been really fun to do with my nieces when they're younger. I was like, let's, yeah, let's count penguins, right? And so, yeah, <laughs> that one's a great one. It was like a project for everybody. And so I feel like we haven't saturated yet. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of internet connections and a lot of people with spare time <laughs> that um, I think as lo long as you have a, a something you need people's help with, um, they seem to be keep keep on coming. One of the big things that you, you do is, is look at our solar system. And that involves looking at asteroids, Kuiper Belt objects. So this is beyond Neptune's orbit, so beyond our major planets. And, and looking for minor planets as well. So things like Pluto, Sedna, these, these dwarf planets. Could you describe to us, you know, what it is about our solar system, the structure, and, and are all those things related? Are all those very much distinct projects that don't talk to each other? <laughs> um, well, I think the thing to think about the solar system is really that I like to think of it like a crime scene. Um, <laughs> we're seeing it afterwards <laughs> and we're trying to reconstruct what happened. And so, yeah, you know, we have our t rocky terrestrial planets. We have the giant planets the you know, are made of gas or gases and ices. And then we have this like stuff left over that's tiny. Um, and there are asteroids and comets and, you know, Kuiper objects or Oort cloud comet, you know, they're, they're planetesimals. And so there's maybe differences on the composition of them and where they formed within the solar system. But the idea is those are the building blocks. These are the bricks that formed everything else. And so when we look at the Earth and we look at Jupiter, right, they're different, but these planetesimals went into them in maybe different ways. And so... In some ways, I think the, the small bodies are really interesting because the asteroids tell you about the, the terrestrial planets, the Kuiper objects tell you about the stuff that helped form the core of the giant planets, and it was just that, that got, stuff got put together, and then other things started to happen to build to make these things into planets. And what was left, for whatever, for other, whatever reason, got unlucky and that it didn't form a planet. And it's some of it's still around, some of it's been ejected into the into interstellar space. So, you know, the solar system is like a has been a toddler with a cookie um, and <laughs> sort of has lots of crumbs that like got ejected from the, our solar system that are now interstellar objects, maybe going into other solar systems. Um, and some of it's still left around. And so, you know, I think is at least the way I see viewing the Kuiper belt and the asteroid belt is it's like, that's the, you know, the fingerprints and the footprints and the open window, right? If you're trying to figure out what happened in a house, and you're like, oh, somebody broke in, <laughs> right? The windows, you know, and that there's fingerprints, so we might know who did it. 
Um, and, you know, they went over to the cookie jar and they took a cookie, right? Because the cookie jar is open, right? This same kind of thing of like, these are what this planetesimals tell us, right? By studying their properties and um, their orbits, we can sort of understand both the dynamical history of the solar system and a lot about composition and evolution over time. So that's kind of why I'm trying to study these objects is, is trying to understand that. What was the history of the solar system? So how do you go about that? So these are very, very different distances from us they can be very very dark you know we can't we can see the planets in the sky we can see Jupiter and Saturn we, we look up uh, in the sky and you can see them just real really bright but the asteroids we don't we don't see them and, and we're talking about going beyond to the Kuiper belt and even the, the Oort cloud or some of our dwarf planets how do you go about getting observations and, and understanding these these objects yeah um I mean, in a lot of ways, we still treat there. There will always be points of light um, that we're they're so far away. We're not going to resolve them like you could see Jupiter or Mars and be able to look at the surface of it, right? Like you can take a telescope and you know a really cheap telescope, right? Small aperture and or even binoculars, right? And and sort of look at some of the planets and the moon and and see different features on it. And for the objects I study, they're they're basically so far away. They're point of light. Um, we just see what it's reflecting off its surface. But through that, right, you can get a lot of information. And how these are discovered or literally, you know, comes back to the name of planet, right, wanders. That these are, right, by looking at where that star-like thing was on one night or on one hour and is not there in a few hours later or another night, right? And so watching these little, you know, points of light move um, across the sky. So a lot of these are found in wide field surveys, at least a lot of the, what I've been working on in the past has been wide field surveys where we're imaging the sky over and over again and looking for the things that have moved and how fast it's moving gives us an idea about its distance, again, about its orbit. Um, and then what, how it's reflecting light tells us about its properties, like its colors. So looking at the different light and different broadband filters of what you're getting back from the object can tell us about what's on its surface and a little bit of composition. And if you watch the object rotate, right, it'll brighten and dim, and that tells us about how fast it's rotating, again, telling us something about its internal structure, maybe, its size and shape, um, its angular momentum. So however it got that in the initial planetesimal disk, where, you know, all the stuff we think formed initially. Um, and so it's sort of indirectly studying these objects. And, you know, sometimes you're lucky and get something fly by them, like Pluto or Arakoth, which is a... Um, you know, it was a tiny um, cold classical Kuiper object, which we think formed in place in its part of the Kuiper belt, right? Um, and so, you know, some of the idea is taking that, that data or observations from when you get to fly by and see how well we've done with telescopes to sort of infer what you see. But a lot of them, they're never going to be visited. And that's from the New Horizons mission. Yes. Looking at flying past Pluto. So we were able to use that information that we got when this this New Horizons flew past. You look at that and you compare that to what you, you've been able to measure before. And then this new object that it's flown past that, you know, is so completely different from that dwarf planet. It's a, it's a kind of two-lobed object, isn't it? Where it's very much ice. Um, so how can we, like you said, tie that back? So we've flown past this. Does that help us understand all of the other data points or is that just kind of a, a standout um, extreme within that, that phase space? It helps confirm a lot of the story that we've, we've mm -hmm. been telling, I think, and learning. Um, the details, I think, are, are getting crisper um, <laughs> with uh, New Horizons flyby. But, you know, 
Uh, Eric Koth, I like to think of as two flattened, two raviolis that like (laughs) stuck together. Okay. Uh, You know, that like last two in that pot when you're then boiling them, or maybe like me, boiling Mm -hmm. too too long. Um, And so it tells us a little bit about how the bits that form these planetesimals actually put together. But there's been a lot of evidence that objects like Pluto and, you know, a bit bigger in, in sort of these more dynamically excited orbits and um, and even some of the smaller ones are, didn't form in place. And that things like Arakoth that were in these, what we call cold classical belt, they have really circular orbits, probably formed where they were. And so there's been a lot of other evidence we've gotten from telescopes and from studying the properties of Kuiper belt that there's sort of been these two broad populations. One, we think that formed a little more inward and actually moved outward um, was scattered in there because Neptune actually moved in its orbit. And so we see this both from the structure of the Kuiper belt, as well as even looking at the asteroid belt, that probably the giant planets have moved around um, and that we might have even had, and what fits better with the picture we know of, is actually a third plan- ice giant, so that there was two Neptunes and Uranus, and one of those Neptunes actually got ejected from the solar system. And so we're learning all this by sort of, again, studying the orbits and properties of these Kuiper belt objects sitting out beyond Neptune. You're in the business of kind of finding new objects in the solar system, right? So so how many have you discovered? And also, you know, to ask a question that I get asked all the, all the time about exoplanets, do you get to name them? <laughs> uh, yes and no. So I don't actually know my tally, um, but I was, the, <laughs> I was the record holder for the discoverer of, or co-discoverer of the largest solar system object without a name. Um, so the one like dwarf planet, Pluto-sized body that I discovered in my PhD thesis survey um, didn't have a name. And so it's it's every time you discover like a solar system body, you send you through your observations to the Minor Planet Center. Um, and it's basically the clearinghouse that like goes, cool, this is like a new regis- new object, let me register it in my in logs, and they get license plate numbers. So it was 2007 OR10. Um, and so it was that for a very long time for... <laughs> <laughs> oh, little more than 10 years. And then uh, basically the year before the, the start of uh, the of sort of the global pandemic, um, we had a public naming vote because I, um, I felt bad about just giving it a name. Um, I wanted the public to be involved in some way. And so we had we came up with three options with the other two co-discoverers, Mike Brown and David Rabinowitz. And then we let people vote however they wanted to do it whether automated or not. And the winner of the name was Gong Gong. Um, so Gong Gong is a, um, uh, a Chinese um, water serpent god. And so for un- uh, solar system objects, particularly outer solar system objects, you have to give them creation or death deity names. Um, and so you can't call it Bob, you can't name it after yourself. Um, and so I had to, and, and there's a tradition of the name fitting the object. And so I had to like think of the, like the object, uh, uh, Gong Gong is red. So um, that worked because the object has a very red surface. Um, and so you had to like tie the properties of the like deity and the mythology to the object, which I like. <laughs> yes. And it had mm, a moon. So you had to like make sure there was a pal or like some, some, someone at thought nice. so you could have somebody else could name the moon. Um, so yeah, so it was a fun to let people sort of involved in it, but cause it's one of the probably last, one of the few big objects I think in the outer solar system will find. So I felt bad about just like picking a name. So yeah, so it's it's named Gong Gong. So people can get off my back. It, 2007 R10 is named. It is, 
Um, and I don't even get to really name it. I suggest the name, and then the International Astronomical right. Union actually, like, there's uh, committees of astronomers that vote on it. So I didn't really name it. We Like, the public suggested a name that then I submitted as discoverer, because you get about 10 years where the discoverer gets to for, uh, gets to like suggest it, and then anyone else can. I mean, that's closer to naming something than, than us exoplanet astronomers get. So I'm jealous. To yeah. Tell you. <laughs> um, though I don't know. I feel like there's so many exoplanets. Like like uh, now with so many uh, Kuiper objects, it's actually pretty similar. Now we know about four that uh, we know about four or five thousand Kuiper objects, and there's now five thousand exoplanet confirmed exoplanets known. Um, most of them don't have names, <laughs> only like the weird and interesting ones or big ones. Oh, right. so, so I feel like exoplanets will still stay the same. Some of them will get names, but like most of them won't. They'll still have their license plates, but that's okay. We, you know, each <laughs> one, I feel like each person that studies one has like a favorite, even if it doesn't have a, you know, fun name. Yeah. So I, w- I wanted to kind of ask a little bit about a project that you've been working on for, for a few years now, and that is the LSST this is a survey as part of the Vera Rubin Observatory, which is being finished, being built in Chile at the moment. Is that right? And it's, um, what's this, the acronym? It's silly. It's Large Synoptic Survey. Large Synoptic Survey Telescope? Oh, that's the old that's acronym. That's the old name. <laughs> so there's a new one. So that used to be the name of the telescope. And then, and now, and the, and oh. the observe project. And now, um, and I think it's a great name to name it after Vera Rubin, to name the observatory yeah. after Vera Rubin um, and her legacy um, and contributions. And so now they came, they need to name the survey. And so... I think it's actually brilliant that they realized that we astronomers have a hard time giving up acronyms and names we've used. So it's the <laughs> Legacy Survey of Space and Time. So they figure out a way to still use the acronym for the survey. And the telescope also has a name, um, and so does the ca- the ca- you know the camera is also named. But the, the whole thing together is the the Vera C. Rubin Observatory. And so it'll execute the Legacy Survey of Space and Time starting in probably about mid twenty twenty four. So we're very very close to to on sky operations and that's going to find uh like solar system objects in abundance i assume um i don't even know how to plot that many that are going to be able to find i can't even figure out a way to visualize it <laughs> so it's it's the best way to think about it is it's an order of magnitude more objects than we know of today <laughs> will have known today in the entire solar system so we're going to have six million new discoveries um, 5 million wow. solar system objects. We know f- roughly 4,000 Kuiper objects. We're going to hit 40,000. So in my head, I still can't quite figure out that scale, but it's an order of magnitude more. So, um, And what's really cool is that most solar system surveys, like for, for solar system, this is like transformative because the most way that we do surveys is really um, hodgepodge. We get some time on a telescope, we observe for a few years, we discover them, great, we look at their orbits and then use some other telescopes to try to study them, right? And with Rubin, it's 10 years surveying the sky, like observable from Chile, every three nights. And so you're making the largest movie of the entire night sky, right, ever before in multiple different colors, so everything that goes bump in the night is going to be found, right? Everything that changes and everything that moves. And so LSST has this sort of as four main science drivers and solar system is one of them. And so not only do we find solar system objects, but we get all their colors and we get to see how they evolve over 10 years. So some of these will become comets, right? We know that like they're active asteroids. So we know that as, you know, there are asteroids that actually start behaving like comets and break apart and 
you know, we know of, again, things in the middle solar system that are sort of come, come in from the Kuiper belt that also become active. And so I think it's just be really cool because not only are we going to find these things, but we're going to learn about how they, how they change and evolve over time. And so that's not something that's really been done on that scale for, you know, nearly six million objects, in, you know, for free, you know, through this survey. So that's, I think, the exciting bit. It's both the sheer numbers, but just like each object's going to have hundreds of data points, hundreds of observations about its brightness and how it changes. So I think it's it's the big biggest data set I think that you know planetary astronomers are going to see for decades. You know we'll be diving into well well beyond the end of the survey. And another thing I guess I mean to link it back in some ways to exoplanetary systems is that it's going to start finding interstellar objects. So like objects like Oumuamua and uh, Borisov, which you've also been involved in in studying, right? So um, how many do we think we'll find, and why are these so important? Um, I don't know how many we're going to find, but I'm super optimistic. <laughs> um, well, you know, so what's really cool about interstellar objects is that these are planetesimals, right? These are the, the cookie crumbs I was talking about, right? From the, the, the sort of toddler eating a cookie, right? That get like, you know, thrown on the floor, right? And so we know that from our solar system, the giant planets moving around, it's, it's kicked out a lot of planetesimals, right? Into, into interstellar space. So like our solar systems have been really dirty about what it's done with its trash. And so has every other planetary <laughs> system probably, right? And so it's been thought, we, people thought and predicted that there would be planetesimals that would just be like hanging out and moving around in interstellar space that just got ejected by a giant planet. Um, and maybe happens to find another star's gravitational well and, like, falls in. Um, and so, yeah, Oumuamua and uh, Borisov were these two interstellar objects that, you know, we weren't expecting, I think, to find them <laughs> anytime soon, but they happened. Um, and so the the cool thing about these is, is I like to think of it as it's taking these objects from, you know, around other stars and bringing them so close to the solar system that you can effectively reach out and touch them. Right, that the same techniques that I can use to study objects like Pluto, I can then apply to these objects from other solar systems. And so I like to think of it as like looking at the ice cream flavors. Um, like, you know, we know about the building blocks that formed our solar system. Does that work for everybody else? Like when you go to the ice cream mm -hmm. store, right, is the normal flavors there or is it something wildly different, right? So, <laughs> you know, and so for me, I like to say that Borisov and Omomua was like, vanilla and pistachio. <laughs> um, and so Oumuamua is definitely like consistent very much of the solar system and Borisov is kind of on the edge. It, there's one comet that is more depleted in, in some of the elements that were and uh, uh, abundances than, than Borisov is. And so I argue if you can see it in the solar system, then it's in the ice cream store. And so you can buy it. It's just not, it's not the flavor everybody wants. So that's why I say pistachio, right? It's not everyone's favorite. It's vanilla, chocolate, something else. But, um, you know, it's still, it's still something normal and not like, you know, cranberry. Um, I don't know if the last time someone's gone to cranberry ice cream, but that would be weird. But like, what does that then tell us about, you know, who makes ice cream and who eats it, right? And so thinking about in this sense of like, okay, what does that say about how you form planets? So right now, at least from what we see from two, which maybe you could argue is a big enough sample that we know everything, um, it looks like planet formation is very similar around other stars. But rare Rubens Observatory is going to find, could be a few a year, it could be tens of, of interstellar objects a year. 
And so we're really going to be able to test that and really, you know, basically get delivery, right? Deliverers coming over or whatever your service is, right? Of like actual, um, you know, ice cream. And like, you can go get and check whether that's the right flavors and you want to eat it or it's just weird, right? Um, and what does that say, right? So how do we, what are the extremes of planet formation? And so that's what I'm really excited about in Starlight Objects is that A, we don't really know how many we're going to get. But with two, the, the lower pessimistic number is like one or two a year from Vera Rubin Observatory. So I think that's going to be one of the really interesting things when this survey comes online is that we're going to be like really sampling planet formation around other systems just by sitting here and waiting and seeing what comes by. And the really, I think, fun thing about observing these is that some of these are moving so fast, you have only a week or two to study them before they're so far away from the solar system or from the Earth, rather, that you can't actually get good data on them to compare them like you would to things in our solar system. And so it can be, so some of these are, is really just a really quick, quick hello, and then it's on its way, and others will take a little bit longer, and we can study more and see how they evolve from when they first come in um, and whether they're comets or not. So Oumuamua didn't have a cometary tail. Everyone would have predicted it would, and it, it, it did have a little bit of cometary outgassing. Its orbit shifted a little bit, but Borisov had a beautiful cometary tail. And so I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the next 5, 10, 20 of these look like. So I'm excited for, you know, to, to look at all the flavors um, of ice cream um, and what does that tell us about um, how planet formation, it's extremes. So that's one of the really cool things I think we'll see with, with the LSST and, and Vera Rubin is, is, is the interstellar objects. Yeah. But you hinted at earlier um, something in our solar system that is potentially missing, that we, we, we likely had a, another planet that was kind of flung out very early on. This has kind of been dubbed Planet Nine. Will LSST be able to find something like another planet in our solar system? Yeah, and, and Planet Nine is actually even another planet. So it might mean that we actually had <laughs> more than more. Not, we had 10. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there's there's suggestions that, and I, I will argue and others will, will argue vehemently against me, that there's, the jury's still out yet. Oh, yeah. Um, but there's there's signatures of, if we look at the orbits of these planetesimals, that as we get further and further out, um, when these objects are, there's basically like a no man's land where you're far enough away from Neptune mm. that you're not really influenced and you're far enough away from the edge of the solar system that you don't feel the effects of galactic tides or passing stars. And there shouldn't be anything there. And there is. And these objects are in very elongated orbits. And so something perturbed them. Could be a passing star long ago in the solar system's history. It could have been when the sun was in an embedded cluster with lots of stars coming close by, basically its stellar nursery. And then the sun left that. Or it could be there's a planet sitting out there. <laughs> like like a proper planet, like a Neptune-sized thing. Like a thing. proper, real, yeah. big planet out yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. You know, not that not the terrestrial planets are, are not, you know, cool. But it could be something that's like a mini Neptune or Neptune-sized thing. Like a mini, yeah, I think it's more like a mini Neptune that could be orbiting um, on an eccentric orbit. And what that would do is sort of point all of these sort of distant orbits in the snowman land in a few directions. And I think, and so what we currently see is that, or originally when this idea came out, there was all these sort of objects in the snowman's land were all found at the same sort of part of the sky. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're still seeing this restriction on, on part of where these objects are located. And the only thing that can do that is a planet. 
And it's it's thinking about like the sheepdog and the sheep, like right? it's like the sheep. You yep. can't see the sheepdog from like way up in the sky, but you can definitely see that something's going Where around the and keeping moving. the sheep exactly, keeping the sheep and moving them right. And there's the sheepdog. And so this is the exact same thing here: is that the orbits of these objects are telling us something, but there's arguments about how people combine detections from different surveys and how people found them and what those biases mean and so how do you combine all that together to say ah there's definitely a planet that's sitting there and so the exciting thing has been so far that no one's detected this planet or i think yet definitively said um with one data set that yes we see this and so the beauty of Vera Rubin Observatory is it's going to look at the entire sort of ecliptic or plane in the solar system um, and be looking in the region where Planet Nine is predicted to be. And so Planet Nine, if it's real, should be bright enough to be actually moving in, in the, the LSST images. Maybe it'll be fainter for some reason and won't be, but we'll still be able to look at all those detections in that no man's land and see whether from one telescope, one survey, one detection algorithm, do we see this? And I think that's going to say, you know, put the nail in the coffin one way or the other of who's right. Yeah, right. Is there another planet? Like, do we see it and it's waving? Um, or, right, these, you know, we're, see- we're seeing the sheep moving, right? And so now we know what the sheep dog is or at least what it's doing. So I think yeah. that's 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 another mystery that's waiting to be unraveled. Um, uh, and I think we'll know within the first few years of the survey because um, most those distant objects, most of them are found in the first few years. So mm-hmm. I think we'll know pretty soon um, after the start of the survey in 2024 um, whether there's a ninth planet or not. Um, so yeah, stay tuned. We don't even know how many planets are in our own solar system. So... Um, some of these exoplanet systems are tuned better than we are. Well, that leads us on nicely to our segment with all of our guests, where we ask uh, people to adopt a planet into our weird and wacky family of exocast worlds. So do you have a planet that we can adopt into the exocast family? I feel like Planet Earth 1B needs its own, needs some love. All right. So we've already kind of covered a little bit about that. Um, But is there anything in addition to what what we've discussed as to what really, what properties of this planet, like things about it that really kind of highlight to our our listeners? I think, again, it's the the fact that it's sitting in a system with four stars and that somebody, again, (laughs) some, again, and that some, like if you could be living on, it's a gas giant, but if it had a moon that was habitable, right? (laughs) You would see these two stars in the distance and it wouldn't have any effect on the system. And to me, that's really just beautiful <laughs> of how gravity and physics works, right? That these stars are, the other two stars are, you know, again, it's like a binary and a binary, right? So it's these two stars are doing a dance amongst themselves, right? And then they're dancing around this system that has two stars and a planet. And so I think it's just that cosmic ballet, I think, makes it still special, um, and it's so different from our own solar system, right? It's such a different thing mm-hmm. and a different view. So for me, it's that thinking of that, like what that sky would look like, that, you know, someone looking there would be like on an, if there was a habitable moon or a spaceship, right? You'd see two stars <laughs> in the distance that were maybe a little brighter than the others, but you wouldn't, nec- you wouldn't know that they, were, that they were orbiting this entire system. And I guess another key thing to mention is that it was found by citizen scientists who, who were exactly. on Planet Hunters yeah. looking through the data and, and found this planet. Yeah, well, maybe if we've got some creative writers out there that are listening, you can set your next story on a moon orbiting around this Planet Hunters 1 gas giant with these 
binaries in the sky and a twirling binary pair off in the distance. It really, it like you, like you said, it just sounds like this amazing fantasy world that actually exists. So I think it's a fantastic one to add to the family. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about so many different things. You know, we covered so many topics there that we've never really talked about on the show before. So I I think everybody's going to be really excited to hear about the work that you've been doing. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This has been really fun. And I mean, if, if you've been enthused by this discussion, you can always go on Zooniverse.com or PlanetHunters.com or any of, any of the many projects, right? And I believe you, even scientists can go on there and, and put their own data and start their own project. Is that right? Yes, that's definitely true. So everyone can, yeah, so you can go to Zooniverse.org or you can go to ngts.planethunters.org. That's ngts.planethunters.org to go to the NGTS Planet Hunters. Or again, planethunters.org will take you to Planet Hunters Test. So those projects definitely need lots of data. But if it's not for you or you have data, you can definitely go to zooniverse.org. Fantastic. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I used to do that before I was in astronomy. I would sometimes go on the Zooniverse. And it was, it was, I think it really did, you know, enthuse me into, into science. So nice. hopefully that happens for other people as well. Well, thanks so much to Meg Schwann for, for joining us here. And, and don't forget to look out for our other episode this month where we discuss three new papers from the last uh, four weeks. And you can always let us know what you think about this show and any suggestions for future shows on Twitter at exo underscore cast or on our website exocast.org where you can find all of our previous shows. Uh, you can also help support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com slash exocast where each coffee is only $4 and every donation over $15 will get you a shout out on this show. And a big thank you to all our past donors there. And if you want to get your hands on any merchandise, t-shirts, stickers, um, tote bags, then you can go to exocast.threadless.com and buy anything you want there. Uh, Exocast is edited by Fergus Hall and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Dr. Hugh Osborne, a KOPS Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Dr. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol, and Dr. Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in astrobiology at Birkbeck, University of London. Our podcasts are edited by Fergus Hall and are made possible through your kind donations. Find out more on exocast.org.